This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me. Help. Help. Good morning, good morning. Coach Hogg here in the Coach Hogg locker room today on the Ward Scott Files. And uh, we are with a great guest today. We are in the Melvin Law Studio, the Warthog Command Center inside the Melvin Law Studio, protected 24-7 by crime prevention. Our good friends, uh, John Pastore and Randy Elrad. Uh, this is a big day, you know, after the uh, huge shows that went on this weekend for pro football and all the, all the above that happens in this world of sports. And it is becoming increasingly obsessive for American culture, if you will. Mm. In terms of money that are paid to these guys, we're talking actually about the losing quarterback and the Joe Burrow team actually being paid maybe $50 million a year for 10 years. Uh, mm. We've just got a world that has been going crazy over the athletic world. But today we got a special guest with us who is a, a legend all around Gatorland. Uh, he is uh, Harmon Wages, who, well, if there were – Name, image, and likeness in a transfer portal today. The Gators would never have kept him. He would have jumped ship and gone somewhere else and been a starting All-American quarterback for another team. He had the bad fortune, I guess you will, uh, <laughs> in terms of his own particular lot in life, to uh, play behind Steve Spurrier. And it's not very well known either that there was a guy behind Harmon named Kay Stevenson. Correct. Kay Stevenson went on to um, have a pretty good career in the pros both not only as a quarterback for the Bills, but also as a coach. So that was a tremendous lineup of talent in those days, but that talent could not go anywhere once it was the property of the University of Florida Athletic Department. Harmon actually was talented enough, and I know how talented he is, because one day, he may not remember this, we were playing a pickup football game uh, down on Norman Field, and way up in the other corner of Norman Field, there was a softball game going on, and somebody hit a ball and it rolled down to our end of the field and Harmon picked that thing up and threw it clear back to the other end on a frozen rope. And I said, my God, you should have been a center field for a baseball team. But <laughs> that is it may, you know, I knew right then the, the lad had an arm and could really wing it. So he went on though and got a job of all things by just showing up basically and being his own talented self with the Atlanta Falcons and where he set a couple of three really stellar team records. He's written a book called The Butcher's uh, Boy, and that's what we're going to start out talking about. But we'll also talk about anything that you want to chat with us about in the chat line. Uh, we are going to, uh, of course, cover anything about sports you want to talk about. But primarily, we want to introduce you to Harmon Wages. He was known as Charmin Harmon, and um, he was indeed Charmin. He was a very polite fellow. Um, everywhere he went, you know, people knew he was there. And uh, but he was playing behind Steve, but he had his own day in the sun with the Atlanta Falcons. And now he's written a book, which I've read through and I highly recommend that you read it. We're going to talk about it. And that's The Butcher's Boy. And you'll never be able to guess the title. 
So, Harmon, welcome to the Ward Scott Files, sir. Thank you, <clears throat> thank you, Ward. It's good to be here, as always, talking to the professor, as you're still called. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I'm actually Coach Hogg. I put that hat on for this Monday show. So, uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, uh, you know, how you, uh, how you uh, uh, fit in is perfectly normal. Uh, we okay. talk about sports for a while and money, but today we'll talk about sports. But let's talk about the Butcher's Boy, how it came to be uh, all the above, man. Well, for a long time, after all the things I had been through, there's been a bunch, several, people were always saying, why don't you write a book, write a book, write a book. And then I thought about it and thought about it, but I never knew how to write a book. I didn't have any guidance and things like that. I'd never done anything like that. And then I ran into an old friend uh, that I knew back in high school, and she had written a book herself. And so her name is Martha K. Hunt. It used to be Martha Cavanaugh. She's from Jacksonville. She knew me uh, just from around town because I was a year younger and I went to a different school. So we got together and we spent two years going over this. Uh, what happened? I met with a guy named Stan Altry first. Stan has written uh, written a few books. He's mostly a golf writer. Stan wrote the book, and then Martha got hold of it as an editor. And as an editor, she kind of talked with me. Stan came down to Jacksonville. We spent three or four days going over it, and then Martha polished it. Let's just say Stan bought the car. Martha polished it up, and we came up with the title, The Butcher's Boy, which was Stan's idea. And then Martha, like I said, she because she knew me a little better, she polished the book and made it sing, if you want to say that. So the butcher's boy, obviously, because my father was a real live butcher. He was a meat cutter. And we had a little neighborhood grocery store in Jacksonville. I mean, a neighborhood, a little wooden store. So I got to know everybody in town. And then the, within a half mile, because I delivered groceries on my bike. So it's all about a grocery store. It's about growing up, being a butcher's son, which I really was. And it's not a Charles Manson story <laughs> about being a butcher. Yeah. The butchers, well, we had to make sure people knew that it was because my dad was a butcher. Well, you've got a great opening line here that uh, yeah. I was a black market baby bought for cold, hard cash. I got to know more about that, Harmon. What's that all about? Well, I was adopted and after I did some, re after I had a little ward, a little money in my pocket, I decided to hire a detective to find out a little bit about my past. And it turns out my, which I don't want to give away too much about the book, but it's important to know, my maternal grandmother had basically said there'll be no bastards in my family because her daughter got pregnant when she was 16. And back in 1946, you didn't get pregnant if you were 16. You just didn't do that although it's done now, but you didn't. And so my grandmother said, no bastards in my family. And so they, my uncle in Folkestone, Georgia, where Spurrier got married, my uncle up there who's seen a lot of Florida football, knew about it. He knew that his sister-in-law was barren, which was my adopted mother. And so he bought me for $500 and pre and postnatal and then gave me, dad reimbursed him 500, gave me to my adopted parents, Nell and Leon wages. 
And so that's where my home came from. Mother was bearing like three of her sisters and my, my adoptive mother. So then I grew up in a grocery store. The dad was the butcher, therefore the butcher's boy. And then later in life, around the third grade is when I found out that I was adopted. Uh, by, we were skipping rope outside and a little girl named Jackie Vickers, harm is adopted, harm is adopted. And, you know, same way I would do the rope. So that's when I went home, asked my mother and dad about it. They told me about it. Didn't tell me the real truth. They just told me they wanted me and the store brought me and all that. Then as I figured, I found out and looked into it and found out the details of how everything went. Bottom line is uh, my adopted mother was pregnant when she was 16. Her mother said no bastards in the family. And so they sold me to my Uncle Cliff, who was a car dealer. And he, he was a car dealer. So he said, I'll take that fender off the car for you or something like that. And he bought me. And then dad reimbursed him and gave me to his sister-in-law. My mother's sister was married to Cliff. And he's a sheriff in Folkestone. Same place Spurrier got married. Hello. So there's something about folks in Georgia, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Must be the water. Harmon wages, and uh, he's got an interesting story to tell, and we're just opening up the story for you. I've written a book called Butcher's Boy, and he's had some help sort of rearranging it and putting it in the order from some yep. people who really uh, know and care about Harmon, as most of us do who know him. Um, he's been a longtime friend of mine. We go way, way back into the way back, 60s, way back in the mid '60s, and um, um, just always have kind of kept in touch. In fact, let me tell a little secret here on. Uh, myself, Harmon, you may not remember this, but Harmon's a very, very um, a charitable person. And um, when he was playing for the Atlanta Falcons, he said, Ward, why don't you come up and stay with me and watch a game on, on as my guest? So I came up to Atlanta. I can't remember what game was going on. And I was sitting in Harmon's uh, condo living room. Um, it, it was well before the game. I, um, I don't know whether it was the day before or the day of or early in the day of or whatever. Probably the uh, day before. Probably the day before. And there was yeah. a phone call that came. And it was from my grandmother who had somehow run me down in Harmon's apartment or condo, whatever, there in Atlanta to inform me that my father had died. And um, I, I, wow. bid, I bid Harmon will probably not remember this, but. Damn now, yeah. Yeah, I bid, I bid Harmon uh, goodbye, a lot of thanks. So I never got to see. Harmon played that day in person for the Falcons. And uh, I'll always remember that when you talk about your father and fathers, because you've got a couple of fathers, really, we just talked about that, your real father, which you finally kind of sort of traced around and think yeah. you know. And, and then you got your adopted father who loved you. And we're going to get to that part of the story in a minute. But we have that in common about fathers. I know uh, your father died shortly after one of the Falcon games and is buried with that ball that you set all those records with. And my father died while I was there in your condo waiting wow. to go to one of the games as your guest. So um, I don't want to jump ahead of your story, but you did set a record, which you, I think still holds or maybe somebody has crept up on it. Let's talk well, about that record, Harmon. You want to do it right now? Yeah, okay. we'll do it now. Well, it was December 7th, 1969, Pearl Harbor Day. And so that's why I always remember it. But it was the last game my father would be allowed to see in person because of his health. He was a chain smoker, Lucky Strike, Camels, Chesterfield. And he was 64 years old. 
and he'd worked hard all his life. So dad was coming to the game. Now, how Van Brocklin knew this, I don't know. But we were in the team meeting on Wednesday, Ward, and Van Brocklin says, gentlemen, today we're putting a game plan in for old Leon. He even called him by his name, Leon. And so Van Brocklin was a whiz at the game plan. He was very as a genius. So he put in a game plan. My dad's at the game with mother and Uncle John and Aunt Helen, her sister. Last game that he's ever going to be allowed to see in person to get excited because of the heart. Van Brocklin knew it. The game plan he built was around me. And in that game, the first thing I did, I threw a halfback pass, which I'd thrown five of those, which caught the defensive off guard. Because you run a sweep, the guards pull. Defensive linemen are reading the line. They see the sweep. They come charging up. When I raised my hand up to throw the ball, I could still see that DB, that defensive back's eyes got about this big. He said, oh, something. He's behind me. I threw a 16-yard touchdown. Later, I ran out from the 12-yard line. I ran out in the flat, and I kind of elbowed the DB in the shoulder to break his stride, and I caught one around him, and Barry threw me, and I caught one at the 50 right in front of Archie Manning. I mean, right in front of him, dead right square in front of Archie Manning and Jim Taylor, who was with the Saints then. It's 88-yard touchdown catch. Then later... When the guards pull the fullback fills and blocks the chasing tackle, I couldn't get him. He's going, he's reading the guards' knuckles too fast. So I told Van Brock, and I can't get him. So Norman said, just give he told Barry, give the ball to Harmon. Don't tell anybody else. Guards pull, they go this way. Tackles chase him. I go up the middle for a hole, 66 yards for a touchdown. By then I'm spent. I'm out, I'm out of gas. I'm whipped. <laughs> but I'm I'm been beat. 66-yard run, 88-yard catch, 16-yard throw. It's a hat trick. It's been done nine times in 103 years. And so after the game, Ward, this is touching for your dad too. After the game, my daddy shuffles up to me on the field. You know that old man shuffle, you know, kind of – you don't pick your feet up, you kind of shuffle along. I think I walk that way now, Harmon. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I've counted myself too. Dad comes up to me and says, Sonny boy, I didn't know you could do that. Sonny boy, I didn't know you could do that. I said, Dad, here's the game ball. Gave it to him. And then later he died and um, in 74, five years later. And so he's buried with that game ball. I put that in there with him, plus my University of Florida ring, because if it hadn't been for my dad, I never would have been involved in sports. He kept pushing it because after I was adopted and as I grew up, he and I would race all the time. And then I finally got to about 13, and I smoked him out in the front yard. I smoked him in a race, you know, 50-yard race. And he goes to my mother and he says, Nell, I think our little boy has grown up. (laughs) (laughs) I smoked him, man. And so, you know, being adopted, being an only child, the one thing I know about only children is that we have great imaginations. Like Calvin and Hobbes, you know that cartoon strip, Calvin and Hobbes? Well, that Hobbes is his imaginary line. And I have a lot of imaginary characters. So, I mean, I do. (laughs) Well, chapter two is all about growing up in Pine Grove. So let's talk a little bit about that. Okay. Well, Pine Grove, I delivered groceries on my 26-inch Higgins. That's a big bike with a big, I mean, I had a basket as big as this room. And I could put two six-packs of aluminum cartons, you know, Coca-Cola used to come in an aluminum carton, two six-packs on each handlebar, and a big basket full of food. And I delivered groceries to everybody in the neighborhood within a half mile. And so 
again, that's the, the only hill in Jacksonville is right behind my dad's store. That's the only hill there is. But naturally, it's behind my dad's store. So I got to pedal up this hill with this load. And I mean, I can remember my thighs were smoking sometimes in cold weather. It like steam was coming off. <laughs> but when you go into everybody's house ward, you know everybody's business. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even though I'm 10, 11 years old. So one day I came back. And I'm going to use the name Smith and Jones because I don't remember. I said, Daddy, <laughs> why is Mr. Smith always over at Ms. Jones' house at lunch? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, my dad says to me, he said, now listen here. and Listen good, son. Listen real good. Do not tell your mother. <laughs> whatever you do, don't tell your mother. So I could never tell mother. But now that I got older, I figured out he was having some fun. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but I mean, I saw, I knew everybody's business war. We had this one lady who was always in a nightgown. And I said, whoa, <laughs> there's an over upon the ministry. And so what I did, I said, I got to be an entrepreneur here. I said, she's in a nightgown. So I charged my buddies a nickel to go with me. But they didn't maybe catch a shot. They were 10, 11 years old. You know, hello. And so, as it turns out, she was an alcoholic. And she, she always had a cigarette hanging out of her mouth like a butt, like she was a lumberjack smoker. And she'd open that girl in her nightgown, hey, you doing? And the boys, and we'd all get a thrill for a nickel. That was my first business venture as a, as a grocery boy. But um, turned out that she was a drinker. She died much you know, sooner, but. You learn a lot in a grocery store because you go in everybody's house. And in our neighborhood, we had a lot of immigrants, a lot of Syrians, Lebanese, the English people, the Putnams. So I had a chance to be around a lot of different ethnic groups. And a lot of times when I deliver groceries, they'd be having a meal. So I learned a lot about different ethnic foods. You remember, do you ever know Freddie Salem? Did you ever know Freddie? I don't think so. Okay, well, he was the neighbor. He, Freddie's gone now, but he was one of the original fishware people at my little elementary school that I went to. But you learn, you meet people, and when you're upper, lower class, that's the nine class, upper, lower is about it, in the neighborhood, a lot of immigrants in the neighborhood, you learn a lot about a lot of people and about their ways and so forth. Well, you know, that's uh, Pine Grove. Was that a section right there in Jacksonville known well as a... No, that was the name of the street, was Pine that Grove. That was the name of the street, yeah. So, yeah. so Dad called it Pine Grove Grocery because it was right between Park and Herschel, which are two big streets that go all the way to town from the Cumberland Project from Roosevelt Boulevard. It didn't mean a lot to a lot of people, but these were two long roads. But Pine Grove was just a little road in between. What and the creek, where there was a creek, big runoff creek, about three blocks behind the house. And in my book, I write about the creek, that every boy should have a creek. Yeah. Because I watched tadpoles turn into frogs. And you see a lot of things in, in the creek. You see a lot, of, a lot of history, a lot of knowledge in the creek. Well, you know, you said here that you were chased one time by the proverbial German shepherd. I thought oh. that was a funny part of the story. Yeah. Can we tell you that one? Yeah. Well, this German, this German shepherd had my had my number, and up on Valencia Street, that's where his that was his street. You know, dogs are very territorial, so I'd go up there and have to deliver groceries. He'd always chase me, nip at my my heel or my ankle, nip at it, and try to pull me off the bike. That's like a a rent tent had been trained by the police. <laughs> so I said, you know, enough of this. So I got me a dozen eggs. I took the top of the egg carton off. Excuse me, I put it right in my basket. And I said, all right, Ren Tintin, I'm waiting on you this time. So naturally, there he is. He sees me coming. His ears get big and tall, you know. 
And I turned the corner of uh, Valencia, and here he comes. And he gets right up there, and I had my hand, my right leg up on my pedal, you know, keep it high. So he had to reach, he had to reach up for my cuff. And I put that dozen eggs right down on that long nose of a German <laughs> shepherd. I mean, I smacked him, give it to him. And then I took off and took off, and I came back about 30 minutes later, and he was still rubbing his nose in the dirt, trying to get that <laughs> egg off his nose. But I gave him last, a gift. That was that the was last red 10 10 gave you any grief? <laughs> but he never, he saw me, he never, he saw me coming again, but I never saw him. I know he's watched me, but it, when you hit a Renton, they have that long nose, you know. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. smacking good on top of the head with a dozen eggs. Oh, and so the eggs are that gook, and then they get, you rub it in that dirt and the grass. It's gonna, you're going to be stuck for a couple of days anyway, licking his nose. <laughs> Talking with Harmon Wages, who uh, <laughs> has just uh, got a book out called The Butcher's Boy. I highly recommend it. I've read it from cover to cover. It's an engaging read. You won't be bored. And it really starts out with a very – interesting um, um, realization that um, he was um, really purchased for what, $500? Uh, pre and postnatal, five, pre and postnatal and 500 bucks. Pre and postnatal for 500 bucks. <laughs> and as life would have it, had a wonderful family take care of him. And um, the plot thickened though, because the way in which all those people sort of knew each other, you cover very well in uh, the opening of the book. Uh, I think you may have gone over that uh, with me briefly, but so-and-so knew so-and-so, and how did that work? You know, it was uh, – you, you you know what I'm talking about? Uh, no, and what subject, regards to what? To your family, your birthing, and then who uh, – uh, they were related, weren't they? How did your – sir, how did the butcher's dad be – how was it he was picked by the people – to sell you to. They knew him, right? Well, they have an adoption agency and you have to go through that. Uh, we kind of skipped it around a little bit because I didn't have, a, I didn't have, I don't have a, a birth certificate. Didn't have you one. You don't? No, no. Like it says John Smith on it. It says, uh, really? my name is John Smith. Yeah. So when I'm born, <laughs> Uncle Cliff being the sheriff in Folkestone County, he heard about this girl in Fitzgerald, Georgia, who had gotten pregnant she was 16. Grandmother didn't want any bastards you saw in the family. So because Uncle Cliff was the sheriff and knew everybody, the word got back. Now, he knew that his sister-in-law couldn't have kids, and she desperately wanted a kid. And so he just finagled a deal, being a car dealer and the deputy sheriff. He just <laughs> finessed the deal. And because the grandmother of my bio mother did not want any illegitimates in her family. They just worked out good for everybody. So Uncle Cliff negotiated a car dealing deal. You know, here's, we've got a good late model for you. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, there you go, brother. And so he paid for it and presented me to my adopted mother. And that's now um, I've done a lot of research and I did find out and I've met my two half brothers, my mother, uh, Evelyn Louise Chapman, my adopted mother, my bio mother, I'm sorry, she, Evelyn Louise Chapman, she got married later to a Leo Zabrinsky. Leo's son, Leo Jr., went to the University of Florida and was there when I was there, but two years younger from West Palm Beach. He was a 6'2", blonde, blue-eyed quarterback at West Palm Beach. He, lay, he enrolled at the University of Florida, and we've crossed paths. 
We never spoke. Now, Patrick, my second half-brother, I met him in Atlanta. He lived at Stone Mountain. And he looks like the 5'9 me. I'm 6'2", he's 5'9". There were two other girls that she also had, but I never met them. Margaret and um, Barry. Never met them. But, and I've wanted to meet them. I'd like to, but then I'm 76 now. So, you know, who knows if they're still alive. Right, right. Anything about that was was very fascinating. You know, it's a fascinating story. And what um, I'm engaging, recommending everybody who's listening to the show, get the book and read it. It's really interesting, The Butcher's Boy. Um, It's, it's, uh, Harmon asked me what I thought of the book. And I thought, I'll give my summation again. Maybe it'll, it'll help. This is a story. What's universal about this story is no matter the hand you're dealt, you have all sorts of opportunities to do really, really well. And, you know, there's a lot of things along the way. Good luck, good fortune. Also, being able to uh, be uh, uh, resourceful and, and uh, raise properly helped him. Yeah. Um, all that. You want to talk about that a little bit, Harmon? Well, see... The thing is, this good, the good thing, really, is that my adoptive parents, Neld and Leon Wages, were very spiritual people. Avondale Baptist Church was where they were a member of. So at the time, I looked at it this way, I was kind of made to go to church, be raised. I mean, that was part of growing up when you're little. And I was in the choir, and I was in Royal Ambassadors, and then we went to prayer meeting on Wednesday night, then we went to training union on Sunday. So I had the basic foundation of Christianity. So because then that was very fortunate because mother and dad were very spiritual. And then as you grow older, you look back and you think about it and then you go through some different trials and tribulations and you go through things. And I remember after I, my mother, after I set those three records in that game, you know, where I threw ran, ran one, caught one, my mother, Remember, came up to me with dad. Dad was, of course, he didn't, hey, 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 hey. But mother being a little bit more settled said, you see, son, there is a God. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I'm telling you, I'm not that fast, Ward. I, I'm not that fast. It looked like I came from Krypton that day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. You're fast enough. Um, I wasn't people- that fast. I outran, I outran three Afro-American defensive backs. White boys <laughs> don't do that. What? <laughs> I mean, why was, I remember Ray Brown. He's Afro-American defensive back. He said, there's some bro in you somewhere, boy. There's some bro in you. White boys ain't that fast. Is that his? <laughs> he did. He, I was real tight. These defensive backs, you know, they're uh, quick and fast and snappy and all that. And Ray Brown and uh, Rudy Redmond, they said, there's some bro in you somewhere. No doubt. No question. Because white boys ain't that fast. <laughs> so I, I wasn't that fast. I don't know what happened. Let's talk about one thing before we take a break at the bottom of the hour here. He wore the number five, and there's a story oh, yeah. with number five, because the, the great Paul Horning, whom I actually met once, um, he and Frank Gifford were, I don't know what they were doing, peddling clothes for somebody in a, in a department store, and they were bo- both there, and I met them both. Uh, Did and, you? Uh, 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 Paul Horning was a notorious kind of bad boy, uh, if I remember correctly, but he was enormously talented. And Notre Dame, he was a quarterback. And, of course, Lombardi made him a running back. Is that right? Correct. Yes, yes. And he was really good. Um, very good. You, yeah, you got the number five. I had that number five, which he wore, become your number. 
How did it happen? Yeah. All right. My running back coach with the Atlanta Falcons was named Lou Carpenter. He was Paul Horning's roommate at Green Bay. Ah. All right. I'm a rookie. Okay. I'm a rookie. I am told by the veterans, you will stay out with us 30 minutes later than curfew on Wednesday nights because you're going to drive us home because they're going to drink all the beer they can. So I come in late, a rookie, a free agent. I come in 30 minutes late with the veterans. Lou Carpenter, Horning's roommate. Are you out of your mind? Are you nuts? Your chances of making the team are nil. You have, you have no pedigree to you. I mean, what are you, crazy? And so I explained the situation to him. The same thing happened a week later. I have to ride the veterans home because they don't want to drive if they've been drinking a lot of beer. So he, he just comes to me and says, you're out of your mind. Your chances of making the team are nil. You know that. He's really on my case. So anyway, every running back got hurt except me in training camp. And I was a quarterback. So they said, we're going to move you to quarterback. I mean, to running back. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm a quarterback. He said, well, if you don't want to go to Vietnam, you're going to be a running back. <laughs> because they're cut you, I'm gone. So anyway, they moved me to running back. And then after a game or two, uh, Lou Carpenter says to me, if you make the team, son, if, if, if you make the team, I'm going to give you number five because you remind me of my roommate, Paul Horning, off the field. <laughs> off the field. Off the field. <laughs> and so when I made the 40-man cut, because every running back got hurt but me, our star junior coffee, Fifth round, Jim Hagel, Tom Bryant, they all got hurt. So they moved me to running back. I make the team because everybody got hurt. I come into the to the locker room one day on the 40-man cut. I'd made the team, and there's number five hanging in my locker, Lou Carpenter, because his roommate was Paul Horning. And then it gets better. When I started doing games with CBS, doing color auditioning, they're real games, but they're like an audition for new guys. You know who my first game was with? Paul Horning. I'll be done. He was doing the play-by-play. -play. I'm doing the color, and I look at him. He's huge. This guy's big. He is big. I never yeah. knew he was that big. He was big. But he has that golden hair, quarterback at Notre Dame, number five with the Green Bay Packers. And, I mean, he's huge, Ward. And, you know, he, he died about a year ago. He's 81 years old, and he passed away. I mean, but Paul Horning was really, really nice to me. He said, you're, uh, you're, you're number five, but you're little number five. You know what I mean? You're not the big number five. But that's how I got to London. That's it. I'll be darned. Harmon Wage is talking with us here, and you can tell right now that we have got so many stories to tell. And we're going to tell <laughs> some more after we come back from our break at the bottom of the hour, and i give you a little bit of update on the weather. So stay tuned to the Ward Scott Files. We'll be right back. Good. <laughs> Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on 
on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melman Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, R&R Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All these poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. All right, welcome back to Ward Scott Files. We got Ward's weather report here, and we're going to tell you that, ironically, it's going to be warm here in the piney woods of north central Florida and God's country here outside the Manly Warthog Command Center. We had a fire two nights ago in the fireplace, and today we're going up to 80. Go figure. Uh, so we'll take it, and uh, we'll enjoy it as long as we can. Now, some of the other parts of the country are in trouble. You've got icy, icy travel. Power outages possible from Dallas to Nashville. You've got the coldest air of 2023 uh, in the northern Rockies and upper Midwest. Great skiing right now if you get out to California. What a dump they've got out there. You've got a quick-hitting storm dropping snow in the Midwest, and you've got some downpours, localized flooding still in the southeast. So um, it is really a potpourri of weather. And um, depending upon you where you are, it may rather pleasant or it can be downright nasty. So um, govern yourself accordingly and enjoy it if you've got a sweet spot because it could change abruptly, especially with spring not really too far around the corner. We're getting these colliding air masses that produce all this turbulent weather. Talking with um, Harmon Wages now, a longtime personal friend whom uh, we have um, enjoyed chatting with here the first half hour. I'm looking at the chat line. If you have any questions, I'll look at them, pick them up and pass them along. Uh, what we are talking about today primarily, but everything is on the table, is um, Harmon's autobiography, The Butcher's Boy, wherein he reveals that he was adopted and sold without a birth certificate to this day for $500. Yeah. But he's had the good fortune to uh, have been raised by wonderful people and has strong Christian values. 
and those have kept him going through all sorts of things that encounter one encounters along the way. Uh, there are bumpy roads in everybody's life and people get caught up in all sorts of tides and um, currents and things. And Harmon was no exception to this. He was a star, of course, of the Atlanta Falcons. And then he was, uh, I think that was the clock that rang maybe. Uh, yeah, that was, was my very, incoming email. Yeah, it was very, very uh, much on the way to a broadcaster's life. Tell me about the broadcaster's life. Uh, well, like a lot of jobs, when they finish, they want to be a sportscaster. Frank Gifford did it. Many, many others did it. You see them every day, especially if you watch the playoffs now. There's always a couple of ex-jocks in there. But I wanted to do it bad. I really did. And so I talked Channel 5, the CBS affiliate in Atlanta, to give me a break. No teleprompter award, no teleprompter then. And so I then, then also my sports producer was writing and typing my script. You got to write your own stuff to talk like you. So I get on the show, my first show, big publicity about it. I got a lot of PR. Watch him on the weekend, of course. It was a 6 o'clock week, a Saturday. Everybody's watching. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm terrible. I can't read. It's a <laughs> teleprompter. Somebody else is writing. The teleprompter may be in line, maybe not. It was not automated at then. And I'm starting to sweat. And I'm talking about, I'm talking about really sweating, really dripping off my eyebrows. My whole body went into shock. And I, right about middle of the broadcast, I just slammed my hands down. <laughs> Excuse me. I slammed my hands down. I said, folks, I know I'm terrible. <laughs> I know I'm terrible. I can hear you laughing right now. But I promise you this, I will get better because, as we all know, I cannot get worse. <laughs> and I had a ton of responses from people. You know, the truth will set you free. And people's apathy suddenly turned to empathy. I had a ton of correspondence saying, hey, look, you know, we're going to pull for you because, yes, you were bad, but you will get better. And so that's what happened because I just stopped. I was dripping with sweat. And you can even see, Ward, my hand, this, this hand coming under the screen with a handkerchief. It was my co-anchor, Ken Roberts, sliding me a handkerchief under the he thought under the camera's view, but you see this handkerchief and I'm dripping. I mean, I'm dripping. It's like somebody poured water on top of my head. I just had an immediate chaos sweat. And so, but anyway, when I said I will get better because I can't get worse, uh, everybody said they started pulling for me. And uh, that, that's what happened. And I just told the truth. I was bad. I mean, we didn't even have teleprompter. And here I am reading somebody else. You know, you can't read somebody else's writing. You got to write it the way you write. And <laughs> my English wasn't the best it could have been, I guess. But I had my he's, my he's and my hymns were right. My I, you, he, she, it, we, you, they. You learn the pronouns. You're the professor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do learn the pronouns. Well, um, so you were how long in the broadcasting business? Five, six years? No, I did uh, 12 in Atlanta. Did you? I did two in Jacksonville and at Channel 12 there with Dan Hicken. And then I came back and did another year and a half. I did CNN radio, which I really enjoyed. 
I liked radio better than TV because I was doing CN called 680 The Fan. We started at 530 in the morning. That's new, a little bit new for me. So you have to get up at 330, be there to go on the air at 530, from 530 until 10. 680 The Fan Talk Sports Radio. And I did that for 18 months. almost killed me. And then I got back in the two years in Atlanta, Jacksonville at Channel 12. Then I went back to Atlanta for Channel 46. So I really did about 14 years TV, and I did two years of radio. And my very, very favorite thing to do, which I love, is writing commentaries. I did a commentary. It's called 90 Seconds with Harmon Wages. I did that on 680 The Fan as well. 680 was CNN Radio. I did that, and that was the most fun I had, which is I could write, and then I'd record it. You know, that way you can make sure it's okay. Right. And they'd play it 90 seconds with Harmon Wages, played four times a day, 5.30, 6.30, 9.30, and 10.30. And they'd replay it. That was my most fun because I, in radio, like you know this, radio it's just, it's just easier and you have more time to do what you want to do. You don't have a three point three thirty, and you have the director waving as you get up, get up, get up, stop, 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 get off, get off. You know what I mean? I like radio and I like writing. I used to write for Bill Ship's column up here. I wrote for some for the resident in Jacksonville, Florida. I wrote there was Seth and Pam started the resident. It started with five pages. Now it's got sixty pages. It's a Riverside, Southside, Avondale, Murray Hill, a publication. And I've had more fun writing than anything else. TV's fun for your ego being on there. And once you get relaxed on TV, like you are now, you know, that's when you're okay. You can be you. But until you get relaxed, it's, it's tough up there. You start sweating. And then you, <laughs> you, 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 I mean, you say something you're not supposed to say. <laughs> uh, Talk to me about Beck and the Dutchman. Ah, well... And Brock. We got beat. We played St. Louis in Jack in Atlanta. Got five. We lost Novus, Joe Prophet, number one draft choice, Tommy Novus, number one draft choice, and three other players, starters. We lost five starters. So we go up to the stadium club after the game is where we all get together and unwind before you go home. And Van Brock was over there and he was into his buddy Mary's pretty good. He was really into him. We lost five starters, including Novus and Joe Prophet. And so I'm sitting there, and then he's looking at me. And I, I was his whipping boy then, you know. And I remember saying, if he comes over here, he's going down. I'm not, I'm not in the mood for it. He said, wait, I want to see you. In the, come with me. We're going to the bathroom. I said, my pleasure. <laughs> so we, we go in the bathroom, and I'm geared, and I'm ready. I had enough. And he grabs me by the left shoulder and swings me around like this. And when he did, I just came back with a right to his chin. And he landed in the stand-up latrine. Stand -up. <laughs> the cigarette stuck to his lip because I pressed it pretty hard with a punch. And just as I did that, I mean, as soon as the, the smack, the door opened, and there's John Zip, the late defensive end, and his assistant coach, head coach, Marion Campbell. They see the whole thing. Well, the word got around the NFL in record time that night, and I left. I went and got – Whoever's with him, we left. We went home. My phone started ringing. And Fran Tarkin was the first one to call. And I said, hello. He said, Harmon, it's Fran. Tell me it's true. Tell me it is true. 
It's true, Fran. Because see, Fran and Norm, Fran got Norm fired at Minnesota because Fran was the quarterback, Fran Tarkenton. Yeah. He got Norm fired up there because they wanted him. So Fran, I mean, so Norm hated Fran. He made life miserable for him. And so when Fran called me, he said, tell me it's true. Tell me you decked the Dutchman. And that's what happened. He landed the stand up the train, and my only smart remark was a smart aleck remark, but I wish I'd flushed it, but I didn't. <laughs> How did he react to you after that? He called me the next morning at 7 a.m. and apologized. He said, I got a little carried away. I mean, the phone's ran at 7 a.m. And I, I, I see, you know, I don't know if I'd call her ID or not, but I said, hello. Hey, it's me. I said, yeah. So I'm sorry, I got a little carried away. I said, well, you lost the game. We got five guys hurt. I said, come on down here. I said, 7 a.m., come on down here. So I had to get up and go down there. And we talked for about a couple hours. And never did he – I earned his respect with that punch. And he never yelled at me again except one time when I had a Charlie horse. He said, are you hurt as bad as you're limping? You look like a dead crow. You know, <laughs> you're a lame chicken or something. <laughs> so anyway, we got Van Norman. I then became friends because I punched him. Wow! Get earned uh, respect one way or the other. I'll be. But dumb. I like the Dutch. I mean, I like the. I've been out there. He's buried in Social Circle, Georgia. He, that's where he, we lived. He had he adopted you know three kids. Really? He had a couple, and he adopted three. And Shelly, his daughter, I, she and I stay in touch a little bit. But that was a long, long time ago. But that was the, the Dutchman. He meant well. He meant well, but he just Ward Ward Norm could not deal with all the money the players are being paid today, and the prima donnas who won't play hurt. Yeah. And the way it's changed from the way it was in the old school days. Yeah. He coached in 1960. He was the quarterback for the 1960 Philadelphia Eagles, who won the world championship. He yeah. was the quarterback, and he played with one bar, just one bar under here. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, he was some old school, and you got to respect him because he was a – when I went in the Army, because I played two years while I was in the real Army, the real Army, not National Guard. Yeah. I had to do two years because I was in ROTC, as you know, down in Florida. And so when I'd come in to work in my uniform, after I'd leave work at noon for lunch, come back practice, and I'd go back to work, I was a lieutenant. And uh, he always grinned and had a big grin on his face because so I was wearing a uniform. Well, now you had some dark days. I guess we need to cover a little bit of that. And you got out of that okay, right? Yeah, yeah. What did you learn from your downtime? Well, you had plenty of time to think. Um, you meet a lot of interesting people. <laughs> you really do. Um, it was more or less, it actually was a setup, which is explained in the book. But it was a federal prison, 81 days. And it was because I wouldn't tell on my teammates. Now, see, if I had told on my teammates, I had immunity. I get total immunity. They said, give us these names. They gave me 33 names. For cocaine users, right? Yeah, for anything. anything. Gambling. They said they had they were smoking marijuana, snorting coke, or, or gambling. They were yeah. big on gambling. And I'd never seen anybody gamble. And so socially um, made a mistake, got involved in it. But if I had squealed, and they gave me 33 names, and they were names you recognized. 
I mean, not just ball players, but prominent Buckhead families in Atlanta. If I knew anything about them, I get total immunity. And so I made the mistake of telling the prosecutor to something off. And um, he went after me. And he was and he was running for the DA's office on my ticket. And he got defeated by my lawyer. I got guilty 17 counts, 33 counts, 17 counts, down to one count of misdemeanor possession. That's all I got convicted of. And so the judge says, this is Arenda Evans from Jacksonville. Judge Arenda Evans says, well, Mr. Wages, we spent millions of dollars on this trial. I've got to do something. I said, why? Why? I didn't do anything. So they sentenced me to 81 days. And so I go 81 days. And then I run into all these political guys and these ex the governor of Tennessee was there, John Jenrett, Senator of South Carolina. Oh god. I wonder where all you guys were. And I found out they were there at this the club they called it Club Fed. No bars, no nothing, just a place where you could sleep. And then my sergeant major from the army happened to be in charge of the the commissary, the cook not commissary, the kitchen. And I knew he was type A. So I got Carlos Perez, who was a cartel dealer, to loan me his soldiers. He had 10 soldiers in there to protect him. That's what they call them, soldiers. And I got them to help me clean the kitchen up so you could eat off the floor. And that made him my sergeant major <clears throat> from the Army. And then I was in the Army, happy. So it really wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. And you bad. went into broadcasting after you got out of there. Got back out and started broadcasting again, Channel 46, and doing CNN The Fan. I mean, yeah. so I mean, it didn't stop anything. It was like, because everybody knew it was set up. I mean, the guy comes over to my house. You hear me on the audio tape. The guy named Steve Moore comes in. He gets three years instead of 30. He comes in, he comes to my house, and what are you doing? You hear me say, What are you doing here? He said, I got a present for you. And he flipped an eight ball of cocaine down on my coffee table. And I said, you hear me say, I don't do that anymore. I don't do that. Get out of here. He leaves. He hadn't even been gone three seconds. And there's a knock on the door. I open the door up. And there's a girl with a gun and a, ba- a gun in my face and a badge. And I said, hey, what are you doing here? And they even tell me later that we knew he'd open the door for a girl. And so <laughs> I know. So I open the door. They come in. They take the eight ball that I, you hear me say, I don't do it anymore. And then they make a big federal case out of it. And Buddy Parker, who was running for the DA's office, was the guy who handled the case. I hired Ed Garland, who was, a, was the Matlock of Atlanta, and he, we beat the case. I get convicted of one misdemeanor possession. And then the judge says, I got to do something. And I said, why? Because they spent so much money on the trial. So well, it's um, it's it is um, fascinating it's story. All, it's all, it's all, all in the book. It's all yeah. in the book. It's all in the butcher's boy. There's nothing held back there. So I highly recommend that y'all get this book and read. It's a great read. Harmon, we're going to save. Let's. We got about eight minutes left. Let's talk about contemporary jockism. Uh, you and I have talked about the character who shoved the quarterback and caused. Yeah. Him. What's your take on that, my brother? Well, you know, what's um, Osai, is that his name, Osoi or Sai? The linebacker, the guy who was crying after the game because he pushed, 
that added 15 yards. That gave him a field goal shorter. They win the game. He's taking responsibility for losing the game. A lot of the fans, a lot of the fans are going to say the same thing. He's going to have a hard time. I think what's going to happen, I think that they will probably cut him in the uh, next year before because he will remind the players, if he's there, his presence, that he did maybe cost him a chance to win in overtime or not have a tie because they lost because of that shove. It made the field goal 15 yards closer. He wouldn't have made a 50-yard field goal or 55-yard. He wouldn't have made it. So he's, you saw him crying. He feels bad, but he did what he did. He pushed the guy late and made it. It was obvious he did. He lost control of his temper. The fans are not going to forget that. I think they'll get rid of him. They'll trade him or they'll cut him because if he's still there next year, Ward, it will remind people who of what they – they want to forget that memory because they didn't have a chance to win in overtime. So I think he's – He's going to be chastised by the fans. He's going to be hated. And you haven't heard the end of this yet. I don't think he'll be around the team next year. He might be on another team, but then again, if you bring him to another team, the fans are going to react. He's scarred for life, in my opinion. You've seen examples of this, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. 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 People don't forget that because that shove, he didn't have to do it. That was an anger linebacker, defensive back lineman shove. He shouldn't have done it. That's why he was crying. He knew he made a boo-boo, big boo-boo, and it cost him the game. Maybe it cost him the game. But it's like the coach said, well, we can't blame it on one play. Well, that one play will stand out. You right. know what I mean? Right. They Had he not judged him, they wouldn't have made the field goal. They would have gone into overtime. And who knows would have won. Well, it was certainly shocking. I was sitting there watching it thinking, Me too. Well, this is a very evenly contested match with two young quarterbacks. And – um I happen to think after watching those two quarterbacks and you having been a quarterback, um, I really believe that the kid for the Chiefs is a little more of a threat. Yeah, um, he's 27. He's old. He dies. He's young, really, 27. But Mahomes is the best quarterback of the young changing of the guard. Yeah. Burrow still looks like an 18-year-old boy. Yeah. He's got that smooth face and innocent. And Mahomes, I know Mahomes wanted to teach him a lesson. I know he did. Watch me. I'm the master. I am the I am the bar star. I'm the Johnny Unitas. I'm the John Brody. I'm Joe Montana to be. Watch me. And well, Burrow, Burrow's the number one pick. Excuse me. Go ahead. Well, he did a heck of a job of running around on a gimpy leg. That also yeah, well, you know, that gimpy leg got good sometimes because you got to – Van Brocklin, you got to play with pain. Yeah. You can't let pain make a wuss out of you. You got to stand up and be heard from. <laughs> <laughs> you know what Van Brocklin's – I'm going to say something. Van Brocklin's favorite saying was, stick with me, you'll all be tooting through silk shorts. <laughs> but he didn't, he didn't use the word toot, though, you know. <laughs> I always so heard he was quite a character, really quite a character. He uh, had the greatest one-liners of anybody. Stick with me, and you'll all be through silk shorts. Oh, he said man. that. Stick with me. Well, uh, he he kind of harkens you back to the Y.A. Tittles and those kind of guys. Uh, yeah. Who are just hard-nosed dudes. I mean, it just stayed in there. 
Norm was hardcore, one face bar down here, fiery. I mean, he wanted to win so bad, but he had a soft side too, because he adopted those three kids that from a family, he had a soft side. And, but I mean, he's a great storyteller too. And Norm Van Brocklin, rest in peace. He's okay. Well, it's certainly, it's certainly been enjoyable talking to you. Ken's saying great shows. Ken's been watching Ken Hillier's a long time. Mutual friend of ours. I got to call him Avery, Avery Hillier. You call him Avery Avery Hillier. (laughs) He was your roommate when you lived across the street from me. That's right. And And you actually introduced us. So uh, it was a lot of fun, you know. And uh, I remember you came across the street and said, I got a roommate for you. It was after George Grandy went to Vietnam. And uh, by then, Steve had uh, gotten married and and gone his own way because he was right down there in that corner of the uh, complex with us. So. Yeah, it was remember Granny cool. had those lightning bolts on his pants. He called him lightning. Yeah, he had yeah. lightning bolts. On both yeah, Granny, he, that George was a pretty runner. He was pretty before he hurt his knee. Yeah, I, he was. Um, he was coming from the same neck of the woods that you did, but you never played each other. I know we played Fletcher my senior year, but George was gone because he was a year older. Yeah, but we had 30, 30 you know, thirty-three thousand people at a high school game. How about that? You see, they had the Saturday agricultural fair was the same weekend. So everybody else played on Friday. Our game had to be on a Saturday. Fletcher and Lee, both 7 and 0. Lee, number one in the state. Fletcher, number two in the state. The Beach Boys, they're very healthy. And they had 33,000 people because you could go to the fair, you go and watch the game free. And it was on Saturday night. So everybody from all the other teams in town could come too. That's a lot of people for a high school game. You better believe it. You better believe it. Well, sadly, now we're out of time. We're at 959, and we're going to have Harmon back. He's already agreed. Uh, sure. I don't even have to rope him in. He's, he's uh, And th- for those of you who are saying great story hour, that's basically what we're doing, my friends. We're telling stories. And to me, that's the highest form of communication, telling stories. So check out uh, Harmon's story, The Butcher's Boy. It's available through Amazon. Uh, you can also get it downloaded and read it on your iPad. I've got it both on my ad, iPad and in hard copy. So um, you'll enjoy it and you'll learn a lot about Harmon, but you'll learn a lot about, you know, how to, how to really navigate the world, given the hand you're dealt with, which I think is what the story is really about, is how to make the best of whatever circumstances uh, you've been given. Harmon, thanks so much for coming on the air with me. Uh, we'll be in contact and uh, Thank you to production for helping us and all my fans and students. We're all Command Center out. See you later, Professor.